All right. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament? Really appreciated each of the songs that we have sung this morning. They fit so well with the theme of what we're going to be talking about today, of love and loyalty. I'm going to ask you to keep your uh, Bibles open uh, to this passage. We're going to refer through it as we go through the text, chapters 1 and 2 this morning. I'm going to cover that ground. And then uh, this week, Pastor Dan and I are going to be attending the Evangelical Free Church Conference. And uh, we'll be back next Sunday. But um, uh, Steve Wheeler is going to be speaking and continuing in the book of Ruth on chapters 3 and 4. And so we'll cover this together. And I'm looking forward to that as well. Let's pray as we come into God's Word. Father, would you speak to us this morning as we think about these real-life situations that are talked about in the Bible? They may be in a different era, and indeed they are, and yet the human drama continues. And we can relate to the circumstances of life that these individuals found themselves in and that we sometimes find ourselves in too. Situations outside of our control where we have no place to turn but to you. Lord, help us to do that today. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to be looking at one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture, this story in the book of Ruth. It's the story of how one woman's loss or emptiness is filled by God's grace. And it's the story of how another woman who is living outside of the community of faith can become a believer and become the great-grandmother of King David, also by God's grace. And I look at these events that take place in this story, and I think like that first song we sang, only a God like you could do that. Only God could take these circumstances of life that seem so difficult and so hard and turn them around for good. What makes this book even more remarkable is the time period during which it takes place. It takes place during the days of the judges. It's around 1380 B.C. to 1050 B.C. It was before Israel had a central government and king. If you have read through the book of Judges, which I assume all of you have, you know that that's one of the toughest books to get through in the Old Testament. I mean, it is just such a dark period where there is this rebellion against God. It was a period of lawlessness and immorality and idolatry and oppression. And Israel would go through these cycles where there would be uh, times when they would fall away from God and apostasy and God would allow them to be conquered by their enemies, really to get their attention. They would then realize the predicament that they were in. They would cry out to the Lord for His deliverance. God would raise up a judge. And for a season there would be this turning back to Him. But the cycles continued some seven times in Judges getting worse and worse and worse until the very last verse in the book of Judges really says it best. It was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the way they lived. Everybody was a law unto themselves. They all did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And that's scary when countries, nations get to that point. You know, and I think about that in terms of our own country. When we reject the Word of God as a guide for our law and our rule of law, And we say that, well, it's really whatever the majority decides is going to determine what's right and wrong. You're not far from moving in that direction of everyone, again, doing what's right in their own eyes. And that leads to anarchy. It can't work that way. 
And so here we have the book of Ruth set in that period. And the book of Ruth stands in sharp contrast to the period of the Judges. It is this beautiful story of hope and redemption in the midst of that. And it reminds us that true faith is possible in a faithless world. It is also a vivid illustration of Romans 8.28. That we know in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. In the history of Judaism, this book was read at Pentecost every year. And Pentecost comes at the end of the grain harvest when the people would celebrate and give thanks to God for the barley and the wheat harvest that had come in. And you'll see how this book that speaks about a harvest fits in with that. So the story flows in this book. It begins with chapter 1 where hope is lost for Naomi and for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Let's take a look at verses 1 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now these verses, one to five, are the prologue to the story. There'll be kind of four acts that take place in this story, and then there's an epilogue at the end that tells you how it all finishes up and how it fits with Israel's history. But these verses set the stage. And they remind us that there are times when life doesn't go like we planned. And that was certainly true for Naomi. Life often doesn't go the way that we planned. There are twists and turns that take place in our life and hard things that we have to deal with. And if you think about this particular story, here was Naomi. She is happily married. She is living in Bethlehem with her husband and with her two sons. And they're just fine. Life is going well for them. And then all of a sudden this famine takes place in the land. And rather than staying in Israel, Elimelech, the husband, whose name means my God is king, chose to move his family to Moab. Was that a good thing to do? It was a questionable decision. Moab was an ancient enemy of Israel. And also, the Moabites uh, in the Scripture were to be excluded to the tenth generation from ever being a part of the assembly in Israel. The Moabites worshipped the god Chemosh, a god who demanded human sacrifice. And Elimelech made this decision to go there because he heard that they had food. They were getting rain, and so their grain was growing. And so he made this difficult decision to move his family there and live among them, not as missionaries, but just to go there. And he only intended to do it for a short time, I'm sure, and then to return. But what happens is while they are living there, he dies. And Naomi is left with her two sons. And then her two sons fall in love and marry Moabite women. Now I'm sure that's not what they had planned. They would have wanted their sons to marry uh, those who were in the community of faith in Israel. 
I mean, here they are marrying outside of that. They're marrying Moabites. And after they had lived there for ten years, both Malon and Kilion die. And Naomi is left without a husband or sons. Naomi is empty. She is now an older woman facing life without a husband and to put it in our terms today, without a pension, without health care, without social security, she has nothing as she is looking at the years ahead. She has no provider, no protector. What's she going to do? You know, there are people like that in our world, and maybe there are times when you feel exactly like that too, where you come to the end of your rope and you feel like life is kind of empty here. Maybe you're thinking about your retirement and you haven't been able to set aside money as you would have liked because of the circumstances of your life. And you're looking at the future and going, I don't know how this is going to work out. Maybe you've experienced that kind of loss in your life and you are grieving too. It is a heart-wrenching situation. But there are people in our world who find themselves in very similar situations today. I've talked to those that are elderly who live on a fixed income and struggle with pain, the rising costs of food and heat and medical care. And sometimes they wrestle with what do they pay first. And I've talked to uh, individuals who experience great loss in their life and they grieve over what has happened in their situations. A few years ago I told you about a, a friend of mine in the hometown where I grew up. And... Um, in their situation, this friend of mine, Paul, died at the age of 50 from cancer. He left behind his wife and three children. And it was a terrible loss for Jana and what she was going through there. And then this spring, their oldest son, who had decided to stay there and help with the farming, was killed in a car accident. And she's grieving, and her grief is compounded. I mean, how do you go through situations like that? That's real-life situations where people face loss, and it seems like it's compounded by one circumstance after the other. And we find when we look at people's situations that some people seem to suffer so much more than others in terms of what they are going through. And life is hard, and it, it isn't fair. It doesn't feel like that. And what we also find in a story like this is that there are some things in life that are out of our control completely. Like this famine that occurred in Israel. Or in our world, it may be the economy, or the price of oil, or the flooding that's going on in the middle part of our country. People didn't plan for those things. And because of it, some people are going to lose jobs, and some people lose houses, and some people lose their savings, their income. What do you do? That's the real life drama that we find in the Scripture in stories like this. And then there are some things in life that we do have control over. Like Elimelech's decision to move to Moab. I mean, he chose where he was going to live. We can choose where we're going to live. We can choose uh, you know, who we're going to marry. We can choose where we worship. We can choose where we work or what kind of car we drive or... You know, all of these things, how much money we put into our savings for retirement. And sometimes we get into trouble because we've made some poor decisions along the way. But there are things that are out of our control and things that are in our control. 
And the real question is, how will we respond to the circumstances that come into our life? And what will we do with them? Well, in verse 6, God began to draw Naomi back. It says that when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And with her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living and she set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home, and may the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and they said to her, We will go back with you and to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Here she's talking about her circumstances with her daughters-in-law. She has decided to return home. She's heard that God has come to the aid of her people again in Israel. And she wants to return to Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. And there is fullness that is returning to the land. But as Naomi is thinking about going back, she urges her daughters-in-law to stay there. She was being realistic that their future, she thought, would be better in Moab than in returning to Israel. And what she was referring to here about, you know, I don't have any more sons, was this law in Israel that if a, a man died leaving a widow and there was a younger brother or a member of the family, they were to take her in and they were to provide for her and be her protector. And she's saying, I don't have any more sons. And even if I got married today, are you going to wait around until they grow up and can fulfill this obligation? No. Why don't you stay And she urges them to remain there. And again, what it says then in verse 15, um, excuse me, verse 14, At this they wept, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah returns to Moab. Ruth clings to Naomi and says, No, I won't go. And in verse 15 it says, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Here is this contrast between these two daughters-in-law. Orpah goes back to her family, to her gods, to her people. But Ruth clings to Naomi. The word that's used there for cling is the same word that is found in Genesis 2.24. When Adam and Eve uh, were brought together, 
and where the scripture says that therefore a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife or cling to his wife and the two will become one flesh. It is a strong word of commitment. She is expressing her love and loyalty to her mother-in-law that she is going to stay with her no matter what. That's why many times this passage is even used at weddings where couples have expressed that kind of love and commitment to each other to be together as long as God gives life to both of them. And here is this Moabite taking an oath in the name of the God of Israel. Now where did Ruth learn that? How did she come to faith? Well, she comes to faith because of the witness of Naomi. She has seen her life and she has seen her worship of the one true God and she has come to believe in this God because of Naomi's example. And she's saying, I'm not leaving you. And they return to Bethlehem. It must have been a dangerous trip for these two women along the way as they travel. I don't know how they did it, if they joined with a caravan that was going back or what, but for two women to travel alone in that day would have been very, very dangerous indeed. And when they arrive in Bethlehem, the whole town hums. And basically, that's the word that's very descriptive in Hebrew, is that you can hear this word hum or a buzz that's going on in the town as they return. And we see that in verse 19. The two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Something was different about her. They could see it in her countenance, her appearance, or maybe she had aged some. And she says to them, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, and the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Naomi looks at her circumstances and she can't see God working in this for good. Her eyes are clouded by grief. Her feelings are just so, so hard, so difficult. She's probably struggling with depression at this point even. She's saying, I don't get this. And so when the women see her, they see her countenance has dropped. This isn't the Naomi that they knew. And Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet in Hebrew, she says, don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has made my life bitter. That is how she feels. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She feels very much like Job. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. And she is on that side where she feels totally empty. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever talked to somebody who felt like that? There are times when people will come into my office and we will talk about what's going on in their life and they'll pour out their pain and their grief or their sorrow and they'll share that and they just it's hard for them to see God. It's hard for them to hear God because when they look at life it just seems so difficult that they don't see any hope at all for the future. And they need someone else to come alongside and be with them or walk with them in that journey. 
Naomi didn't see yet what a blessing Ruth would be in her life. But there is a sign of hope in the text when it says that they arrive in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest was beginning, just as fullness was coming into the land. And in chapter 2, her hope returns. It begins to be rekindled again. And what we see in this chapter is how God is at work even when we can't see Him. And He is at work in our life or He is at work behind the scenes doing things that we don't notice unless we intentionally look for them and trust Him. Listen to how chapter 2 goes. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. When it says that he was a man of standing, it means that he is a man of character, he's a man of good reputation. It seems that he is also a man of some means or wealth that God has blessed him. And in verse 2, Ruth volunteers to go into the fields to do some gleaning. Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up some of the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. The law at that time said that if you were a landowner, you had a field and you were harvesting it, you weren't to harvest to the edge of your field, you were to leave some of the grain there, some of the heads or stalks, even as you gleaned and put things into sheaves, so that the poor, the widow, the alien, the orphan could come and they could get food. And it wasn't much, but it was enough to keep them alive and they could come in those fields behind the harvesters and take some of the grain for them to eat. So Ruth volunteers to do that. She wants to go into the fields to at least provide something for them. And so she goes, and uh, the story continues here. And uh, Naomi says, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, or some of your Bibles may say, by chance, in quotes almost here, she finds herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who is from the clan of Elimelech, from the same clan as Naomi's husband. Now, here is Ruth. She doesn't know that she's in that field. She doesn't know it belongs to Boaz. She's just looking for a field where she can go and maybe find enough bread for today. But God knew that. And God providentially directed her to this field. God does that in our life too if we will look for it. We can't see on the front end how He is leading and directing us, but when we look back upon the circumstances of our life, how many times have we seen that God moved us took us to the right spot, but people into our life at the right spot or right time for us to be that encouragement or help along the way. God was doing that here. She meets Boaz, and Boaz was a good man, a man of faith. We see that even in how he greets the harvesters, those who were working for him. In verse 4 it says, Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, and he greeted the harvesters, and he says, The Lord be with you. And the Lord bless you, they called back. Here is a man who treated his workers with respect, with honor. He was a believer. And he ran his business in that way too. And Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? He hadn't seen her before. And the foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. 
And she went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. I mean, think about what he is saying about Ruth, this woman, who is also a woman of faith and character. She is honoring her mother-in-law. She is being loyal to her. She is a hard worker. She is polite and respectful. She has come and asked permission to do this. She didn't have to do that. The law gave her freedom to do that. But she went and asked for permission to glean there in the field. And she has worked hard all day until now with hardly a break. This is a woman of character, a woman of loyalty and faithfulness. And Boaz shows his faith in the way he shows kindness to Ruth in her situation. In verse 8, Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. He realizes that it is not always safe for a woman in this world. And so he wants her to stay and work here where he will watch over and protect her. He said, I told the men not to touch you. Whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. You don't have to draw your own water. Please go and find some water here and take a drink. And at this she bowed down with her face to the ground and she exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? She knows that she is an alien in the land. He didn't have to do this. And she is humbled by his response. And Boaz says, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father and mother in your homeland and you came to live with a people you did not know, uh, not know before. And may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She has made this choice. She has put her trust in God. She has come to take refuge under the God of Israel, the true God. And he has heard about her faithfulness and loyalty. You see, Bethlehem was a small town. And when Naomi returned, and especially if she is a relative in this family, everybody's going to know, and they're going to know about Ruth and what she has done in her situation. And some may have raised eyebrows about what's this Moabite doing here. And others are amazed at her faithfulness and commitment. And Boaz has heard about that. And Ruth humbles herself. Verse 13, she says, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. She said, You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. The word that she uses there for servant literally means the lowest of the low. I am even beneath your servant girls. I'm not worthy of this kind of favor. Thank you for the kindness that you have shown to me. She is a woman of faith. And Boaz is a man of honor. And we see that being lived out in the way that they treat one another. Boaz is like Christ in this story. If you think of Ruth's situation, she has no right to claim anything from him. Yet he is gracious to her. And isn't that like Christ with us? We come to Christ. We have nothing that we can bring to Him. We are empty. Just like Naomi. We are sinners. What we deserve is God's judgment. 
What He gives us is His grace and His favor when we come and humble ourselves before Him and seek His mercy. And what we find in Christ is blessings far beyond what we deserve. And that's what Ruth begins to experience through God's favor here in bringing her into the field of Boaz. Boaz invites her to eat with the harvesters. And he instructs them to leave some heads of grain just for her. The story continues in verse 14 at mealtime. Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. And she ate all she wanted and had some left over. And as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. He said, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening and then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. And Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law was amazed. She had gathered far more than would have been expected in a day. And so she said, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said. And Naomi tells her that Boaz is one of our kinsmen. He is a kinsman redeemer. That's a very specific term referring to Boaz, and that term uh, Steve is going to explain next week as a part of the message what that meant and what that would mean for them in the future. But what we see in this passage is not only has God been gracious to provide food, but God also protected Ruth by bringing her to the field of a godly man. Not one where she would have been harmed, but one where she was protected. God is at work behind the scenes in ways far greater than Naomi and Ruth would understand at the time. And Naomi would go from a place of emptiness to fullness. And Ruth, the Moabitess, would become Ruth, this great-grandmother of David in the line of Christ. I mean, it's an amazing story on how all of these things turn out as we go through this book to the end. Ruth will continue to work in the field of Boaz. God will provide for her and for Naomi through that. But Ruth will end up not only in the line of David, but because of that, she is an ancestor in the line of Christ. Now in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 16, we have one of the genealogies that are listed for Jesus Christ. And there are only five women mentioned by name in the line of Christ. In fact, that in itself was unusual. Women were usually not named at all. But when you look at the list of the five women that are mentioned in the line of Christ and you remember the stories about them, it's really quite amazing that they are there at all. The first was Tamar. She was a Canaanite. She ended up having a relationship with her father-in-law. And she has a child, and that child is in the line of Christ. You have Rahab, who was living in Jericho. Rahab was a harlot and a Canaanite living there when Israel was about to enter the land. 
and she becomes a part of the line of Christ. You have Ruth, a Moabitess, again from an enemy of Israel, that finds herself becoming the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king. You have Bathsheba in that line. She is an Israelite, but she was closely associated with the Hittites. Remember, her first husband was Uriah the Hittite. And then Solomon takes her to be, uh, excuse me, uh, David takes her to be uh, his wife, and Solomon is one of the children born to Bathsheba. And then you have Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. And Mary is a young woman. She has not done anything immoral at all. But she is a young woman, perhaps even a teenager at the time that she becomes the mother of Jesus. It's an amazing list. I mean, when you look at that and you think about it, it's an evidence again of why um, the Bible is true. You know, if you were to write these things as fiction, you'd probably clean it up a little bit here. You wouldn't have these people in the line of Christ. But they are an example of God's grace. They're an example that God's plan of redemption and salvation was for all people. It's for men and women. It is for Jew and Gentile. And even in the line of Christ, we see that reflected. There is grace and mercy and forgiveness for all who come to Him. Wow. What a great thing that is. Because that means there's a place for you and me also. Well, Ruth would show herself to be a woman of faith by her love and loyalty to Naomi. Boaz would show himself a man of faith by his love and loyalty to God and to his people in the way he treated Naomi and his workers and Ruth. And you know, that's what really matters, isn't it? It's not what we say that's most important. It's how we live. Because it's how we live that proves the reality of our faith And it is most often in those daily, ordinary things of life. It's the way we run our business. It's the way we raise our family. It's the way we participate in the life of the church. It's the things that we do for God that are just part of our ordinary life and service that God can use in ways far beyond what we would think or imagine. It's just being faithful and loyal and loving God and loving His people. You know, I think about what took place here with Vacation Bible School as an example of that. I think that we've got the best team anywhere in terms of working on VBS. I just appreciate so much what all of you do as a part of that week. And I I see it in the kids that are so excited to be there. And they have no idea because they don't have the comparison with, say, other VBSs or things like that. They don't know how good this really is in some ways. And yet they love it. And when they graduate out of VBS, if you will, they want to come back and work and help with it because it's such a great thing. And they're so excited. And they love to give. And there are lessons of faith that are being taught. Well, you know, we have no idea what God's going to do in the life of those kids in the future and how He may use them. All He's asking us to do is to be faithful on the front end, here and now. And to do our best to help our kids, whether it's as Sunday school teachers or vacation Bible school or youth ministry or missions or whatever it is, to provide them opportunities and encourage them to grow in their faith. And in the years ahead, we'll see how God will use them. Do you ever feel empty in your life? Where do you turn? We turn to God. And when we are at the end of our rope, 
we need to remember that God is at the other end. And we're not just out there swinging in the breeze, you know, and <laughs> with no hope and we got to do this all ourselves. God's holding on to us even when we can't see Him. And the Scripture reminds us that those who honor me, I will honor. God says, those who honor me, I will honor. I will take care of. I will watch over you. But those who despise me will be disdained. They will not experience His blessing in that same way. And then secondly, remember that God is at work even when we can't see Him. And so look for the signposts in your life. Look for those evidences of His grace and His mercy. And then follow His leading. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the stories in Scripture that are just so real, so true to life and fit circumstances and situations that are similar to ours. Lord, help us to learn from their faith and to be that kind of man, that kind of woman who loves You with all our heart, who trusts in You, who looks for Your grace and Your mercy and rejoices in that, and who hopes because You are a God who is faithful and merciful and gracious to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.